Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. Ex Oblivione by H.P. Lovecraft When the last days were upon me, and the ugly trifles of existence began to drive me to madness, like the small drops of water that torturers let fall ceaselessly upon one spot of their victim's body, I loved the irradiate refuge of sleep. In my dreams I found a little of the beauty I had vainly sought in life, and wandered through old gardens and enchanted woods. Once, when the wind was soft and scented, I heard the south calling, and sailed endlessly and languorously under strange stars. Once, when the gentle rain fell, I glided in a barge down a sunless stream under the earth, till I reached another world of purple twilight, iridescent arbors, and undying roses. And once I walked through a golden valley that led to shadowy groves and ruins and ended in a mighty wall green with antique vines and pierced by a little gate of bronze. Many times I walked through that valley and longer and longer would I pause in the spectral half-light where the giant trees squirmed and twisted grotesquely and the gray ground stretched damply from trunk to trunk sometimes disclosing the mold-stained stones of buried temples. And always the goal of my fancies was the mighty vine-grown wall with a little gate of bronze therein. After a while, as the days of waking became less and less bearable from their grayness and sameness, I would often drift in opiate peace through the valley and the shadowy groves and wonder how I might seize them for my eternal dwelling place so that I need no more crawl back to a dull world stripped of interest and new colors. And as I looked upon the little gate in the mighty wall, I felt that beyond it lay a dream country from which, once it was entered, there would be no return. So each night in sleep I strove to find the hidden latch of the gate in the ivied antique wall, though it was exceedingly well hidden. And I would tell myself that the realm beyond the wall was not more lasting merely, but more lovely and radiant as well. Then one night in the dream city of Zacharion, I found a yellow papyrus filled with the thoughts of dream sages who dwelt of old in that city, and who were too wise ever to be born into the waking world. Therein were written many things concerning the world of dream, and among them was lore of a golden valley, and a sacred grove with temples, and a high wall pierced by a little bronze gate. When I saw this lore, I knew that it touched upon the scenes I had haunted, and I therefore read long in the yellowed papyrus. Some of the dream sages wrote gorgeously of the wonders beyond the irrepassable gate, but others told of horror and disappointment. I knew not which to believe, yet longed more and more to cross forever into the unknown land, for doubt and secrecy are the lore of lores, and no new horror can be more terrible than the daily torture of the commonplace. 
So when I learned of the drug which would unlock the gate and drive me through, I resolved to take it when next I awaked. Last night I swallowed the drug and floated dreamily into the golden valley and the shadowy groves. And when I came this time to the antique wall, I saw that the small gate of bronze was ajar. From beyond came a glow that weirdly lit the giant twisted trees and the tops of the buried temples. And I drifted on songfully, expectant of the glories of the land from whence I should never return. But as the gate swung wider and the sorcery of the drug and dream pushed me through, I knew that all sights and glories were at an end. For in that new realm was neither land nor sea, but only the white void of unpeopled and illimitable space. So, happier than I had ever dared hope to be, I dissolved again into that native infinity of crystal oblivion from which the demon life had called me for one brief and desolate hour. Niarlathotep by H.P. Lovecraft Niarlathotep, a crawling chaos, I am the last, I will tell the audient void. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. To a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger, a danger widespread and all-embracing, such a danger as might be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. I recall that people went about with pale and worried faces and whispered warnings and prophecies which no one dared consciously repeat or acknowledge to himself that he had heard. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a demoniac alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt that the world, and perhaps the universe, had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. And it was then that Nyarlathotep came out of Egypt. Who he was, none could tell, but he was of the old native blood and looked like a pharaoh. The fellahin knelt when they saw him, yet could not say why. He said he had risen up out of the blackness of twenty-seven centuries, and that he had heard messages from places not on this planet. Into the land of civilization came Nyarlathotep, swarthy, slender, and sinister, always buying strange instruments of glass and metal and combining them into instruments yet stranger. He spoke much of the sciences, of electricity and psychology, and gave exhibitions of power which sent his spectators away speechless, yet which swelled his fame to exceeding magnitude. 
men advised one another to see Niar Lehotep and shuddered. And where Niar Lehotep went, rest vanished, for the small hours were rent with the screams of nightmare. Never before had the screams of nightmare been such a public problem. Now the wise men almost wished they could forbid sleep in the small hours, that the shrieks of cities might less horribly disturb the pale, pitying moon as it glimmered on green waters gliding under bridges and old steeples crumbling against a sickly sky. I remember when Jarl at Hotep came to my city, the great, the old, the terrible city of unnumbered crimes. My friend had told me of him and of the impelling fascination and allurements of his revelations, and I burned with eagerness to explore his uttermost mysteries. My friends said that they were horrible and impressive beyond my most fevered imaginings, and what was thrown on a screen in the darkened room prophesied things that none but Nyar Letotep dared prophesy. And in the sputter of his sparks, there was taken from men that which had never been taken before, yet which showed only in the eyes. I heard it hinted abroad that those who knew Nyar Letotep looked on sights which others saw not. It was in the hot autumn that I went through the night with the restless crowds to see Niar Lithotep, through the stifling night and up the endless stairs into the choking room, and shadowed on a screen, I saw hooded forms amidst ruins and yellow evil faces peering from behind fallen monuments, and I saw the world battling against blackness, against the waves of destruction from ultimate space, whirling, churning, struggling around the dimming, cooling sun. Then the sparks played amazingly around the heads of the spectators, and hair stood up on end, whilst shadows more grotesque than I can tell came out and squatted on the heads. And when I, who was colder and more scientific than the rest, mumbled a trembling protest about imposture and static electricity, Nyar Lethotep drove us all out, down the dizzy stairs into the damp, hot, deserted midnight streets. I screamed aloud that I was not afraid, that I never could be afraid, and others screamed with me for solace. We swore to one another that the city was exactly the same and still alive. And when the electric lights began to fade, we cursed the company over and over again and laughed at the queer faces we made. I believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon, for when we began to depend on its light, we drifted into curious, involuntary marching formations and seemed to know our destinations, though we dare not think of them. Once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, with scarce a line of rusted metal to show where the tramways had run, and again we saw a tram car, lone, windowless, dilapidated, and almost on its side. When we gazed around the horizon, we could not find the third tower by the river, and noticed that the silhouette of the second tower was ragged at the top. Then we split up into narrow columns, each of which seemed drawn in a different direction. One disappeared in a narrow alley to the left, leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filed down a weed-choked subway entrance, howling with laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked towards the open country, 
and presently I felt a chill which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked out on the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon glitter of evil snows, trackless, inexplicable snows, swept asunder in one direction only, where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glittering walls. The column seemed very thin indeed as it plodded dreamily into the gulf. I lingered behind, for the black rift in the green-litten snow was frightful, and I thought I heard the reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished. But my power to linger was slight, as if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half floated between the titanic snowdrifts, quivering and afraid, into the sightless vortex of the unimaginable. Screamingly sentient, dumbly delirious, only the gods that were can tell. A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that were not hands, and whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotting creation, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low. Beyond the world's vague ghosts of monstrous things, half-seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest on nameless rocks beneath space and reach up to dizzy vacua above the spheres of light and darkness. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and the thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time. The detestable pounding and piping whereon to dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous, ultimate gods. The blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Nyarlathotep. The Book by H.P. Lovecraft My memories are very confused. There's even much doubt as to where they begin. For at times, I feel appalling vistas of years stretching behind me, while at other times it seems as if the present moment were an isolated point in a gray, formless infinity. I am not even certain how I am communicating this message. While I know I am speaking, I have a vague impression that some strange and perhaps terrible mediation will be needed to bear what I say to the points where I wish to be heard. My identity, too, is bewilderingly cloudy. I seem to have suffered a great shock, perhaps from some utterly monstrous outgrowth of my cycles of unique incredible experience. These cycles of experience, of course, all stem from that worm-riddled book. I remember when I found it, in a dimly lighted place near the black, oily river, where the mists always swirl. That place was very old, and the ceiling-high shelves full of rotting volumes reached back endlessly through windowless inner rooms and alcoves. There were, besides, great formless heaps of books on the floor and in crude bins. And it was in one of these heaps 
that I found the thing. I never learned its title. For the early pages were missing, but it fell open toward the end and gave me a glimpse of something which sent my senses reeling. There was a formula, a sort of list of things to say and do, which I recognized as something black and forbidden, something which I had read of before in furtive paragraphs of mixed abhorrence and fascination, penned by those strange ancient delvers into the universe's guarded secrets, whose decaying texts I loved to absorb. It was a key, a guide, to certain gateways and transitions of which mystics have dreamed and whispered since the race was young, and which led to freedoms and discoveries beyond the three dimensions and realms of life and matter that we know. Not for centuries had any man recalled its vital substance or known where to find it, but this book was very old indeed. No printing press, but the hand of some half-crazed monk had traced these ominous Latin phrases in uncials of awesome antiquity. I remember how the old man leered and tittered and made a curious sign with his hand when I bore it away. He had refused to take pay for it, and only long afterwards did I guess why. As I hurried home through those narrow, winding, mist-cloaked waterfront streets, I had a frightful impression of being stealthily followed by softly padding feet. The centuried, tottering houses on both sides seemed alive with a fresh and morbid malignity, as if some hitherto closed channel of evil understanding had abruptly been opened. I felt that those walls and overhanging gables of mildewed brick and fungoid plaster and timber, with eye-like diamond-paned windows that leered, could hardly desist from advancing and crushing me. Yet, I had read only the least fragment of that blasphemous ruin before closing the book and bringing it away. I remember how I read the book at last, white-faced and locked in the attic room that I had long devoted to strange searchings. The great house was very still, for I had not gone up till after midnight. I think I had a family then, though the details are very uncertain, and I know there were many servants. Just what the year was, I cannot say. For since then I have known many ages and dimensions and have had all notion of time dissolved and refashioned. It was by the light of candles that I read. I recall the relentless dripping of the wax, and there were chimes that came every now and then from distant belfries. I seemed to keep track of those chimes with a peculiar intentedness, as if I feared to hear some very remote, intruding note among them. Then came the first scratching and fumbling at the dormer window that looked out high above the other roofs of the city. It came as I droned aloud the ninth verse of that primal lay, and I knew amidst the shudders what it meant. For he who passes the gateway always wins a shadow, and never again can he be alone. I had evoked, and the book was indeed all I had suspected. That night, I passed the gateway to a vortex of twisted time and vision. When morning found me in the attic room, I saw in the walls and shelves and fittings that which I had never seen before. 
nor could I ever after see the world as I had known it. Mixed with the present scene was always a little of the past and a little of the future, and every once familiar object loomed alien in the new perspective brought by my widened sight. From then on, I walked in a fantastic dream of unknown and half-known shapes, and with each new gateway crossed, the less plainly could I recognize the things of the narrow sphere to which I had so long been bound. What I saw about me, none else saw, and I grew doubly silent and aloof, lest I be thought mad. Dogs had a fear of me, for they felt the outside shadow which never left my side, but still I read more, in hidden, forgotten books and scrolls to which my new vision led me, and pushed through the fresh gateways of space and being and life patterns towards the core of the unknown cosmos. I remember the night I made the five concentric circles of fire on the floor and stood in the innermost one chanting that monstrous litany the messenger from Tartary had brought. The walls melted away, and I was swept by a black wind through gulfs of fathomless gray, with the needle-like pinnacles of unknown mountains miles below me. After a while there was utter blackness, and then the light of myriad stars forming strange alien constellations. Finally, I saw a green-litten plain far below me, and discerned on it the twisted towers of a city built in no fashion I had ever known or read or dreamt of. As I floated closer to that city, I saw a great square building of stone in an open space and felt a hideous fear clutching at me. I screamed and struggled and after a blankness was again in my attic room, sprawled flat over the five phosphorescent circles on the floor. In that night's wandering, there was no more of strangeness than in many a former night's wandering, but there was more of terror, because I knew I was closer to those outside gulfs and worlds than I had ever been before. Thereafter, I was more cautious with my incantations, for I had no wish to be cut off from my body and from the earth in unknown abysses, whence I could never return. Narrator's Notes I've always been sort of an indifferent fan of Lovecraft's writings. Although I enjoy some of his works very much, such as the stories presented here and most of the Cthulhu mythos, a lot of what he wrote doesn't really appeal to me. I'm also never really sure what I think of the man himself. He nurtured his prejudices like a well-loved garden, yet was a loyal friend, mentor, and even a husband to people outside of his beloved Anglo-Saxon heritage. So instead of attempting to write a nuanced bio that tries to balance his pluses and minuses, which might be tedious for many listeners and a big red flag for rabid Lovecraft enthusiasts, I'm going to reference two resources for anyone who wants to find out more about the man and his works from people who both care deeply about Lovecraft, yet still present him warts and all. The H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, run by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman, is a good place to start. 
Their website is a storefront for many Lovecraftian items and media related to his life and literary works. Brownie and Lehman are both excellent voice actors, and they narrate the complete fiction of HPL as an audiobook, offered as both a downloadable link or via physical media, which I highly recommend. They also produced a podcast called Voluminous, in which they would read letters by H.P. Lovecraft to his many correspondents, giving the best picture of the man himself in his own words. I think they are no longer operating the podcast on a regular basis, but certainly worth checking out the many episodes they have produced so far. The other resource is my favorite podcast, once known as the H.P. Podcraft Literary Podcast, but now mutated into Strange Studies of Strange Stories. This is run by Chad Pfeiffer and Chris Lackey, two regular guys from East Moline, Illinois, who really like Lovecraft and decided to make a podcast describing and interpreting his works. In their original incarnation, they ran through the full Lovecraft catalog, and when they had come to the end of that, they kept going with other weird fiction writers. Like many other literary podcasts, a short section of the story being covered will be read by a guest narrator, and then Pfeiffer and Lackey will break it down usually with a bit of insight and a lot of humor. The music, narrations, and sound design are always excellent. Links will be in the show notes for both of these resources. All music and music and audio production by Bob Familiar. Narration by Jim Bilbro. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana.